The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book One, The Voyage South. Chapter 18, in which Astrea meets Adramen. The rain struck while they were still on their way down from the pass, turning their path into a water-slick streamlet. For much of a risky hour they picked their way downward over rock made treacherous by water. Every few steps they had to put a hand down onto the rough cold stone or lose balance. When at last they reached a gentler slope at the foot of the ridge, the path turned to mud, before it eventually joined a road churned to mire by horses' hooves. The rain beat down, soaking through the hoods on their cloaks. Lindy's blonde hair dripped onto her shoulders, and Estrella's black curls were plastered flat, soaking past his collar and down his back. Soon they could barely see their way in the fading light. Their heads down against slashes of rain that gusted across the road, they slogged past open fields and into the little town, their boots heavy with water and caked with mud. Rain hissed on puddles as they passed, and each step they took made wet, sucking noises. Eventually houses frowned at them on either side, with the occasional lit window like a watchful eye. Under the eaves of a large shed, or perhaps warehouse, they paused to wipe the rain out of their eyes. Astrea saw the glint of light on open water at the end of their road, and glimpsed a hunched figure with a coil of rope over his shoulder and a lantern swinging from one hand. He broke into a run to ask directions, but by the time he reached the wharf the man had vanished. Estrella returned to the lee of the last building, waited for Lindy, and looked about him. Rain swallowed the dim light from the few windows that were not shuttered against the storm. The road they had followed led onto a wharf studded with wooden posts and bollards, beyond which masts swayed back and forth, the wind moaning in their rigging. To his right a line of squat two-story buildings faced the sea across about ten paces of wet, age-blackened wood. Through the hiss of the rain and the slosh of unseen waves against the pilings, Astrea heard creaking timbers, the thump of fenders, and the occasional slap of a rope on boats whose hulls were out of sight on the sea below the edge of the wharf. To his left one meagre pool of light glinted on the dark wood. From an upstairs window of the building in whose shelter he stood, yellowish lamplight gleamed onto a mass of wooden poles, held together by knotted wet ropes, the whole affair swinging back and forth in the rain. Shading his eyes against the downpour, Estrella decided that he was looking at a curious sign dangling from the eaves. Someone had contrived to model a bed out of heavy rope and what might once have been oars, and then had hung it from the jutting beams of the inn's roof. The whole apparatus creaked as it swung back and forth. "'Here's an inn!' Estrella shouted. Lindy made her way towards him, hunched against the wind and rain. He put out his hand, and their wet, cold fingers clung together as he led the way. The inn was a building made a long time ago, by men whose first thought had been of shipbuilding, and only later of houses. Heavy timbers held up a steep roof over a door studded with square-ended nails. By the light of a swaying lantern, its flame turned down to little more than a glow, Estrella saw the inn's name above the door, The Black Sheep. 
he fumbled with the latch, and when it swung open with unexpected ease, he almost fell into the tavern, Lindy close behind him. They stood on a huge scrubbed stone doorstep, below a lamp hanging from one of many heavy beams, and they stared down two more age-worn steps to the low-ceilinged taproom. "'Shut the hatch!' growled a voice below them. Behind Estrella's back, Lindy slammed the door, pushing hard against a gust of wind. With no draught to rag their flames, several brass lamps flared, throwing enough light for them to see that the room ran the length of the building. To their right, a fire flickered in a wide fireplace, fueled by man-sized logs. To their left was a wall of barrels, held in place with heavy rope. Opposite, there were doors into the back of the building, and a steep stair, almost a ladder, leading up to the second floor. Sturdy wooden tables and chairs offered sufficient seating for as many as fifty people, although only half a dozen were filled, all of them by men. Estrella pushed back his hood and looked down onto the shortest, broadest man imaginable, who was standing at the foot of the steps in front of them. His thick body had been mismatched with legs no longer than those of a small child, though no child ever had such massive, post-like limbs. Spectacularly developed arms, shoulders, and chest bulged under a knitted blue shirt. Two half-drowned wharf-rats, he rumbled in a deep bass voice, one fair, one black. Astrea found himself being appraised by deep-set eyes under heavy black brows. As he stared back, the man's mouth widened into a broken-toothed smile. "'Don't mistake me, folks. You may be high-born, high-bred, and even highly wealthy, but you don't look it now. And you may have put together a fine explanation why a young man that's so black on top should be travelling with so blonde a girl, but I don't want to hear it. And that's why I'll thank you to show me some coin before you start your bill by asking for dry clothes. Do you catch my drift?' Estrella turned back his wet cloak, fumbled in his pocket, and counted coins with his fingers. Carefully he withdrew all but the gold, and held out a palm full of silver and copper for the man to see. Before he could step backwards, the man's long arm reached out, and his fingers closed on Estrella's pocket. Estrella's fist doubled around the money, and he reached for his knife. The big hand let go of his pocket. "'Right,' said the innkeeper. Put the knife away, my careful friend. I have to be careful, too. Of course, you may have lead in your breeks, but I doubt it. Estrella slid his half-drawn blade back into its sheath, and let his wet cloak hide it once more. As he put his handful of coins back in his pocket, his eyes widened. One of the gold pieces was bent almost double. Waltz, my name, when you wish to call for food and drink. Now— Follow me for hot baths, dry clothes, and a mug of mulled ale. Oh, and let me tell you that nobody fights here. That is, nobody fights twice. And nobody's been robbed since eight years ago when a man had the misfortune to break both his hands. Have you taken that aboard? He cracked his knuckles like pine branches snapping. Estrella nodded, and Walt led the way across the room. The offer of hot baths and dry clothes was irresistible, but they wondered how much of their concealed but already evaluated gold it might cost. On balance they were prepared to count the expense small, if they could once again be warm and dry. 
They followed Walt's rolling gait among the tables, past heads and shoulders of men studiously attending to their food or drink. Estrella hesitated as the bracelet on his arm tingled. Beside him he saw Lindy's finger stray towards her left arm. They exchanged a swift glance and then followed Walt to the back of the room and up the steep stair like a ship's companionway with a rope handrail. As they climbed, Walt suddenly turned around, briefly overtopping their height. "'It would be more seemly if the young lady were to wear some clothes I can offer her. In that wet cloak, and with your hair no longer than many a seaman, lass, it's a good chance that most did not see that you are what you are, and very nice, too, let me add. In a loose shirt, pair of breeks, and a tunic, you'll pass in the shadows for a young lad, and I'll have less chance of trouble on my hands. Your friend won't be needing to defend your virtue, and I won't have to be mopping up his blood.' "'It'll be someone else's blood if Estrella's in a fight,' said Lindy, ignoring Estrella's quick silencing gesture. "'Oh, he's capable, is he?' Walt said over his shoulder as he led the way to the end of a short passageway lit by another brass lantern. "'Then what do you think of this?' His long arms were a blur of motion as he seized Estrella by the belt, swung him around, and pinned an arm behind his back. Beside Estrella's throat was a short-bladed clasp-knife. Fast as he had been, Estrella and Lindy were no less quick. Lindy's staff lanced up to a finger-width from Walt's throat, and Estrella's knife pressed inward a little lower than the innkeeper's bottom rib. All three stared at one another, unmoving. It was clear that any first move would precipitate a bloody melee. Estrella's arm became free, Walt's clasp-knife folded with a snick and vanished in his big hand. The heel of Lindy's staff met the floor, and Estrella returned his knife to his sheath. "'Very fine, young sir and lady,' said Walt, his broken teeth exposed in another even wider grin. "'My compliments. There have only been two others who have come up even with me, both of them men of the sea. None has been faster. Now that we all agree that we don't want to see each other's blood, we can be friends.' His big, square-ended hand came out, and Estrella took it. His knuckles ground together under the man's grip, but he did not wince. When Walt reached out his hand to Lindy, she took it as had Estrella, formally, forcefully, and with a steady gaze. They followed Walt to where a small lantern lit a narrow hallway, punctuated by varnished doors. The innkeeper lifted the latch of the one closest to the stairs. "'Now, in you go. There's a tub, and I'll have hot water for you in a trice.' They stood in the light from the hallway while he lumbered into the room ahead of them, lit a lamp, and hung it over a thick-topped wooden table surrounded by four matching chairs with substantial arms. He waved them in, and three heavy steps later closed the door behind him. The room was like a well-appointed cabin. Everything in it had been designed for a comfort that conserved space. Polished brass knobs, hinges, and fasteners reflected the light in tiny pinpricks. Dark blue curtains were pushed back at the head and foot of two white blanketed mattresses set on top of low chests of drawers. There was room to lie on the beds, but if a sleeper sat up incautiously, he would bang his head into the underside of the roof where it angled down towards the eaves. Heavy, knee-high chests provided seating in the corners and under the deep-set window, which was tightly closed and shuttered against a storm. 
In the light from a smaller version of the fireplace in the tavern below sat the lower half of a huge barrel. Before they had the chance to do more than slide out of their packs and hang up their sodden cloaks, they heard a muffled thud on the door. Lindy opened it to reveal Walt, carrying two huge buckets of water, one of which would have overburdened most men. "'Me hands were busy. So that was me head knocking on your door,' he said cheerfully. "'I thought you'd like some time alone before you came below for food.' He poured steaming water into the tub. "'In them chests of drawers are clothes, all clean, and in most sizes.' "'How much?' Estrella began. Walt turned and casually touched one fist to the point of his chin. Estrella felt sure he was meant to understand the gesture, but it was meaningless to him. "'From you, young sir, it'll be a pleasure to take your money, and no more of it than you see fit or can afford.' Walt paused at the door. "'It might be easier on everyone if you'd wear one of the caps you'll find in the sea-chest. Your hair is very obvious. No offence. He moved so quickly that the door was closed before Estrella could think of words to question him. "'Did your bracelet sort of itch down there in the tap-room?' asked Lindy. Estrella nodded. "'Perhaps it was just that we were side by side, like last night.' Estrella felt his face redden and could think of nothing to say. "'Well, there's no point in letting this room go to waste,' said Lindy cheerfully. "'Whatever the explanation for our luck, we might as well enjoy it.' I'm going to get into that tub and soak. Then I'll see what those chests have to offer. They turned at another knock on the door. It opened just wide enough to admit two steaming mugs held in a huge hand at the height of Estrella's waist. When he took the mugs, the arm withdrew, and Walt's deep voice came through the closing door. Food below when you're ready. Estrella covered his confused emotions at sharing the room with Lindy, with behaviour he'd learned from growing up in his mother's tiny cottage. He bent over and placed one of the mugs beside the tub, deliberately looking only at Lindy's feet. Then he turned and sat at the table with his back to the tub, drinking his mulled ale, looking at the wall, and wishing it was a mirror. "'This is a lot better than that awful jug and bottle at the castle,' said Lindy. "'There's a water-closet through that little door. Much better than fifty cold paces to an evil-smelling outhouse.' and a tub of hot water in the room. Marvellous! Behind him came faint splashes and an occasional sigh of contentment, as Lindy enjoyed her bath and her ale at the same time. Again, Estrella was balanced at the centre of conflicting impulses, the most pressing of which was Lindy's presence, only a couple of steps away. Should he turn? Would he embarrass her? He would certainly embarrass himself. And what then? Balanced between shyness and longing, he did nothing. Eventually the splashing ceased, and Lindy came into view, wrapped demurely in a towel. "'Your turn,' she said as she opened one of the chests. Estrella eased off his wet boots, trying both not to notice, and at the same time to remember every movement Lindy made. "'Go on, silly, the water's still hot.' Estrella started to unbutton his shirt. With a glance at Lindy's back, as she bent over one of the chests, he swiftly pulled off the rest of his clothes and stepped into the tub. Estrella bent his knees and lowered his shoulders under the water, noticing as he did so that his bracelet had lost the woven string Skarm had given him. The green stone gleamed as if in response to his glance, 
and without thinking he held it out of the warm water while he soaked away the cold and tiredness from their long walk. Eventually the water did not seem warm any more, and he reluctantly climbed out of the tub, splashing water onto the floor. "'You slosh, you mop,' said Lindy cheerfully. He took a step behind one of the chairs on which she had set out some clothes, and toweled himself vigorously. Lindy was kneeling to dry her hair by the fire, her face invisible. "'Now we're both clean and dry, and I've found some things that should fit you. The next thing is food.' "'Good idea,' said Estrella, pulling on the clothes swiftly, wishing he had the confidence to put his arms around her. They left their room in borrowed clothes. Lindy wore a loose white shirt and faded blue breeches, and her hair was tucked into a cloth cap. Estrella had pulled a black knitted watch cap down to his ears, above a dark, coarse shirt and black, close-fitting trousers. The knife Damon had given him was on his belt, as was his father's. Estrella looked sidelong at Lindy under the lamp in the hallway. She had transformed herself. As well as putting on a man's clothes, she had changed the way she moved, somehow replacing her femininity with the look and movements of a young man. It was almost a shock when her fingers found his and squeezed. "'It's a pleasure not to be wearing a skirt,' said Lindy, as they started down the steep staircase. "'In Matris I only wear skirts and dresses for celebrations.' Estrella found himself staring at a button that had come undone on her borrowed shirt. Lindy caught his glance and rebuttoned briskly. He blushed. "'Sorry,' he mumbled. They entered the tap-room at the same time as a noisy group of five came through the main door, slapping water from their hats and shrugging off their coats. Walt greeted the men by name, suggested Muldale before they could order it, and then waved them to a central table. On his way back to the kitchen he passed Estrella and Lindy, winked, and twitched a massive shoulder towards a quiet corner not far from the fire. They sat side by side, behind the table, their backs to the wall. Estrella looked about him carefully. Most of the men at the Black Sheep were fishermen. Their sea-going clothes were familiar to him, and also the way they held their heads and glanced around them with an alertness so unlike the learned's self-absorbed, downcast eyes. A moment of sorrow touched him, as he remembered Gar's approval when he had noticed how the green-gowned men ignored the world around them. The emotion triggered his memory, and, as if obeying an order, he cleared his mind and looked about him with what Gar had called the painter's eye, wanting to catch what he was seeing on paper, and wishing Gar could share his sketches, as he had done when they had prowled the town around the castle, looking for interesting faces and figures that they could add to the design in the hall. Here were men who reminded Estrella of the village. Even the younger men's faces were weathered and seamed by salt-laced air, and most were bearded. It was their eyes that delighted Estrella, because every man's expression, no matter how shaped by nature, age, or temperament, held a keenness that had been absent during most of his travels on land. Whether for good or mischief, as in the case of a couple of decidedly furtive-looking characters near the beer-barrels, everyone was unobtrusively aware of his surroundings, even when supping on a mug, ripping a piece of bread from a loaf, or spooning down a chunk of the fish stew that had started Estrella's mouth watering. Noticing Lindy looking about her with what seemed to him a slightly apprehensive air, 
Estrella thought that maybe she was used to students, tavern girls, and farmers, but not to sailors, until she directed his attention with a whisper. "'Those men over there aren't missing anything,' she said. "'They're not fishermen, and they don't look very friendly.' He followed her glance, and saw four men hunched around a table in the corner on the other side of the fieldstone fireplace. The flickering orange light from the big hearth lit their backs, and the candle in the centre of their table revealed only glimpses of their faces, all of them clean-shaven. The few times any of them spoke, their voices were indistinct and secretive, even though the other patrons of the inn had left the tables near them empty. Estrella's attention fixed on the tallest, who overtopped the others even though they were all seated. For a moment light fell on his angular face, and he caught a glimpse of dark, almost black, eyes. Then, as the man's head tipped back to drain his mug, he saw the firelight gleam on straight black hair, tied back into a short queue. Unlike the heads of his companions, the man's hair was not just dark, it was raven-black. Estrella's fingers strayed to the cap Walt had suggested he wear. "'I'm not the only black-haired man here,' said Estrella thoughtfully. Lindy followed his glance and nodded. Estrella's attention returned to his own table. As Walt appeared, his broad hands loaded with food and drink. Estrella saw that his long stare at the four men had been noticed. "'Walt,' began Estrella. "'Later, young master,' replied Walt softly, as he slid a plate in front of Estrella. "'Pay him no mind. They ain't popular with most of my customers.' Before Walt could be questioned further, he returned to serving other patrons, his huge shoulders rocking back and forth to his awkward, hip-swiveling gait. "'We'll finish our meal quickly and talk in the room,' said Estrella. They dipped spoons into their bowls with appetites whetted by long hours of walking on short rations. Estrella tasted lumps of fish, lobster, potato, and onion in a milky broth. "'Chowder,' he muttered. "'It needs more fish, more herbs, and less time waiting to be eaten,' said Lindy. "'Do they make chowder and mattress? Wait until you taste mine.' In no time they were chasing the last drops with chunks of crusty bread and draining their mugs. Estrella looked at her and nodded. They chose a path among the tables as far as possible from the black-haired man, and climbed the stair back to their room. There they found the curtains drawn, the tub removed, and their clothes almost dry before the fire, which had been replenished. Conspicuously placed in the middle of the table were Estrella's father's book and the money-pouch. He snatched them up, cursing under his breath for not having transferred them to his borrowed clothes, and as he did so, feeling relief that Walt had used the mistake as a way to assert that he was trustworthy. Estrella sat in a chair by the table under the light of the lamp and pored over the book once again. He pulled off the cap that he had worn to disguise his hair and tossed it in front of him, and then dropped his little bag of coins into it. The sleeves of his borrowed shirt chafed at his wrists, so he rolled them up above his elbows and leaned his forearms on the cool wood of the table, his father's book between them. The bracelet gleamed on his left forearm. Lindy sat beside him, and he almost reached for her. Instead, he started to talk. "'I don't understand what this book is about, Lindy. Gar would have, I think, but I never asked him. For certain it's not witchcraft.' He looked into her eyes suddenly as a thought struck him. 
Walt must have taken a look at it while we were downstairs. I hope—let me see it, said Lindy. Estrella pushed the little book between them, and they sat, shoulder to shoulder, as Lindy turned the pages slowly. Estrella, said Lindy, suddenly putting her hand on his, this is the symbol of birth. This one of the father, this one of the mother. We keep records at Matris this way. But I don't understand the first page at all. Gar knew them as well, but he didn't explain, and I never got a chance to ask him about the poem, or puzzle, or whatever it is. He turned to the page, and Lindy read the deeply scored words. Hand of Jian far draws on shore, star sets in song where stones roll to the sea, sun of or on plots a course to the city of the sea, where dim clasps light no stones. The part about plotting a course sounds like sailor talk, said Lindy, and could that be a star to steer by? It makes me think of a song, The Wanderer's Curse, said Estrella gloomily, but this is even more obscure. Gar thought you might have been sent for him by the men of the sea. Estrella frowned as he once again wished for a conversation with Gar that he would never have. He deliberately shrugged off the impossible, ignored Lindy's line of thought, and took a new direction. Do you suppose the city of the sea is where they live? I don't know, said Lindy. But my people know about sailors who stole people from us years ago. Mothers frighten girls by telling them about men with black hair who'll sail into Matris and take away the naughty ones to be slaves. But there's another story about men of the sea bringing the first settlers to Matris. It's all a bit confused. Slaves? asked Estrella. Do you mean they had slaves? You're thinking of slaves in chains, Estrella. Women of Matris use the word for any woman who makes her husband into a lord and master, and gives him babies until she dies of them. The women of Matris took over our village to stop that sort of thing. Besides, the men of the sea couldn't have been all bad, because there's also the tradition that they brought my ancestors to a good place in which to settle. All of them women? asked Estrella. Lindy shook her head. There were more women than men, though. Estrella was struck by an uncomfortable memory. Lindy, I never told you about the ship and the village we saw on the Molly's voyage south. It was huge, big enough for a hundred people or more. It had been grounded and dismasted. We first thought it was a wharf. But the village was empty, windows and doors open, and there had been a huge fire. Yan ran ashore before Roaring Jack could stop him, and he found bones. Human bones. Skarn tried to tell us that there had been a plague, but I think it was an attack that stove in the ship and then murdered all the people. Lindy, where would such people come from other than from the sea? Outside the rain drummed on the window, and the wind hooted under the eaves. Coldness wrapped itself around Estrella's mind. He looked down at the book and continued in a whisper, "'You're with someone who's a part of that evil.' Estrella, look at me. Estrella brought up his eyes slowly and faced Lindy. Her eyes were very blue, and the shadows from the lamp above them accentuated her lips as she talked. You're not evil, and I'm sure neither was your father. Besides, you are not responsible for what your relatives did or do. Their lives, good or bad, are their own, 
and like everyone they must have done things that anyone could take pride in, as well as things we all wish hadn't happened. He stared at her, wanting to believe what she said, but fearing that she was only trying to relieve his distress. I just wish Gar had been able to tell me. His gaze fell on the dark tabletop. His head tipped forward, and he squeezed his eyes shut. Then he felt her hands on his cheeks as she drew his face to hers and kissed him gently on his eyes. Salty, she said. I wasn't crying. I was thinking about Gar. So was I. He opened his eyes, and as her lips met his, he closed them again. A long and breathless moment passed during which Estrella felt his mind slow as feelings replaced thoughts. Three heavy blows thudded on the door of the room. He opened his eyes and drew back, his heart pounding. They both jerked to their feet. "'It's me, Walt,' came a deep voice through the door. "'There's men who want to meet the young master.' "'Enter,' said Estrella. A tall figure strode out of the dark hall. The black-haired man had worn authority when sitting with his men, but he was even more commanding as he stood in the doorway. Tight black trousers accentuated his lean height, and his jacket of the same leather-like material framed a white shirt beneath, open at the neck. Below his chin hung a silver gorget in the shape of intertwined dolphins. Astraea's appraising look froze when it reached the man's eyes. They were black, unblinking, and they had the arrogance of someone used to unquestioning obedience. Yet there was also something restrained about him, like a sheathed knife, its point and edges out of sight for the present, requiring only an instant to be whipped into action. Astraea stood, met the man's stare, and then slowly lifted his arm to beckon him into the room. As he did so, the loose sleeve of his borrowed shirt slid back from his bracelet, and the green stone gleamed white fire from its center. The man's black eyes caught the light as he glanced from Astraea's face to the stone, to the money pouch, and the open book on the table. His eyes narrowed in slight hesitation, and his dark eyebrows drew together in a frown. He straightened his back, rocked onto his heels, his left arm curved up from his side, and his hand balled into a fist below his chin. As his clenched thumb touched his gorget, Estrella saw a green stone in a ring on the man's middle finger. The gesture was a well-practiced salute, but it left Estrella without a response. "'You are welcome,' he said courteously. "'Please enter.' "'Sailing Master Adramin of Cygnus, your name and vessel.' "'My name is Estrella. Liar! Men!' Adramin strode deliberately forward to the end of the table as two men surged past him on either side, one in a brown jacket, the other wearing blue. The first shoved Lindy back into her chair, seized her wrists, and twisted them behind her. Estrella heard her mutter a curse, but before he could move to free her he felt a knife-blade on the side of his neck. His pulse slowed, giving him time to realize the futility of fighting at that moment. Instead he spoke quietly and evenly, choosing the formal speech he had read in books. I made you welcome, and gave you my name. You called me a liar, and filled the room with drawn knives. You menace my friend. You have shown strength, but not courtesy. His words matched the leader's manner, and both knew it. Estrella had caught the measured tone of command, 
but where Roaring Jack would have set everyone's ears ringing, Estrella's voice was low, and had it not been for the edge of anger, almost gentle. Adramin blinked and muttered a word to his men. The knife at Estrella's throat slid back into its sheath, and both men stepped back. Lindy's eyes flashed, but she did not move. At another order, the man in a blue jacket stepped away from Estrella. The man in brown nodded respectfully to his leader and went out the door. As it closed behind him, Estrella glimpsed Walt's squat body in the passageway outside. Estrella took a slow breath, gestured to chairs, and sat down. Adramin chose the chair on the other side of the table, the door behind him guarded by the sailor in blue. The lantern hung above the center of the table, making eyes gleam unnaturally, and leaving a dark pool of shadow in the middle of the table. "'Let us start again,' said Estrella. "'My name is Estrella.' "'That one's a girl,' said the man in blue. Adramin nodded. "'Once again, then. My name is Adramin, Sailing Master of Cygnus.' He paused and shifted slightly in his chair, as if to indicate that he was bored with the formality. "'This is Boatman Mirak.' He indicated the man in blue with a small gesture. Then he continued in a tone marked by deliberate irony. "'Now, may I ask, with all the deference you claim, how it is that you, who appear to be younger than I, are using the name of a man who, if he were here, would be older than either of us? And, as you think about your answer to that question, you might also be considering how to explain why you wear a navigator's clasp, something I would not dare to do unless I had earned it. Every word was edged, making the formal politeness into a calculated insult. Lindy moved slightly beside Astrea, placing her hand on the table beside his. My name was given me by my mother in memory of my father, who I never knew. He died before I was born. The bracelet, clasp, my mother had from him as a wedding gift. She gave it to me when I left the village. I wear it in his memory. Mirak bent and whispered deferentially in Adramin's ear. He replied inaudibly, and the man nodded. "'If you are Estrea's son,' said Adramin, carefully emphasizing the different pronunciation, "'by whomever, then you have inherited his looks, but you have no right to his badge of rank and ability until it is earned and clasped your arm by the master.' Estrella glanced at Lindy, on whose swiftly moving lips he read a quick admonition not to be overly impressed. His answer sounded more confident than the guess that was behind it. "'Then I judge that only the master himself can remove it.' "'Very well. Even a by-blow has a right to a hearing.' Estrella stood quick as thought. He tipped the hanging lamp so that its light fell squarely into Adramin's eyes, at the same time plunging his own face into darkness. The boatman's knife rasped out of its sheath. "'Insult me if you wish, Adramin, but not my parents.' He quickly straightened the lamp and sat down again. Adramin pursed thin lips, as if Estrella had both confused and impressed him. "'I offer no disrespect to Estrella or to your mother, whoever she may be,' he said, conspicuously avoiding any apology to Estrella himself. 
He raised one hand, turned his head so that neither Astraea nor Lindy could see his lips, and whispered to Mirak, Now, of your own will and without force, you will accompany me to the master. And my friend? Hydramin's lips curved into a smile that was not friendly, and the heavy-browed Mirak on his left gave a little snort of derision. "'Will not be harmed,' said Adramin. "'We do not assault women.' Estrella looked at Lindy. Her lips and eyes moved minutely, and she nodded. "'We will go with you,' he said. Adramin stood, the door behind him opened, but Estrella did not see anyone enter. "'Young master,' rumbled Walt's voice from behind Adramin, "'best you take that book. I wouldn't want anyone to think I'd had something to do with it.' Estrella picked up the book and thrust it into the pocket of his shirt. He rolled his sleeves down slowly, covering the bracelet on which Adramin's eyes were still fixed. Estrella and Adramin stood up at the same moment. Lindy reached for her staff, but Walt's hand closed around it first. "'You won't be needing that at sea. I'll keep it for you. Now, about that—' "'Out of the way, Stumpy!' Mirak interrupted as if Walt had not spoken. Lindy frowned but had no time to speak as Adramin turned, opened the door, and strode out of the room. Merak and the unnamed sailor in brown waited for Estrella and Lindy to move, and then followed them closely. There was no opportunity for Lindy to do more than clasp Estrella's hand briefly before she followed him down the steep stairs. They entered the tap-room, where the hum of people talking, drinking, and eating ceased abruptly, and more than a dozen pairs of eyes followed their every move. Adramin and his men paid no attention to the silent watchers on their way to the outer door, but held their right hands significantly close to their belts. In a few closely escorted strides they were outside, and uncomfortably aware that they were not wearing either their jackets or cloaks. Merak slammed the door behind them. The rain had ceased, but the wind had piped up and the waterfront was alive with noise, the slap of waves creak of cordage and the incessant tapping of halyards against the masts of the boats alongside made conversation impossible. The moon glanced through torn clouds, washing a fitful light over water flecked by whitecaps. By its wan light Estrella saw that the inn was the next-to-last building before the end of the wharf, where a finger-dock reached into the water. Adramin led the way to the edge of the quay, where his men bent over mooring lines. The nameless sailor jumped nimbly down into a boat that had been invisible from the inn, save for its swaying mast. "'Boots off,' said Mirak. "'I'll toss him down to you when you're aboard.' Astrea nodded, bent over, and did as he was directed. Behind him, Lindy fumbled with her laces. "'If you can, step down onto one of the thorts—that's seats, in lubberlingo,' said Adramin, as Astrea stood up, barefoot. "'Don't fall in!' he added scornfully. Estrella looked down into the gloom, where he saw a slim open boat rise and fall, tended by two men who were fending it off from the wharf. He gauged the distance as the waves lifted the boat, and when it was an arm's length from the wharf's edge he jumped, landed lightly, and sat immediately. He looked up, waiting for Lindy to follow his lead, but saw only Adramin silhouetted against the moonlit clouds. Suddenly he misgave, sensing treachery a moment too late. "'Lindy!' he shouted, and stood to jump back ashore at the next wave. A heavy blow between his shoulder-blades felled him to the bottom boards of the boat, 
Taken by surprise, Astrea got his hands up just in time to save his face, but he could only struggle ineffectively as he was rolled onto one shoulder. His arms were pulled back behind him, two pairs of hands pinned and tied his wrists and then his ankles. Then the two men forced him into a sitting position and trussed his elbows to his knees. Helpless, Astrea saw Adramin leap into the stern, the last mooring line falling into the water behind him. Astrea felt a knee shove him out of the way, so that a sail could be hauled up the mast above his head. A mooring line splashed and was brought inboard. The boat's bow swung away from the land, and the sail thumped as it caught wind. Astrea had been kidnapped by the men of the sea. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.